I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, True and Real Stories from the Fringes of Classical Music. Uh, we're still recording here uh, remotely. You uh, you hanging on over there in your basement, Scott? Yeah, I've got most of the projects that, you know, I set up to finish while this was going on. I, I didn't have enough of them. I'm almost done. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. But I did notice that, you know, being out around the lake and everything while walking radar, you know, the, the amount of people around the lake is like tripled. Yeah, we, we have more reason to try to get out and get some fresh air. That's all there is to do. And friendly, man, people are waving. This never yeah. happens. So yeah, yeah, we're we're really learning not to take uh, social interaction for granted. I, I I know that that's the case for me, and I'm lucky enough to you know have someone with me, and um, you know not not to go into anything, but uh, you know recently moved. So yeah. when you move, there's always things to set up and you know this shelf to move or whatever so you know keeping busy that way but uh yeah so as, as we continue to uh get through this uh COVID-19 pandemic uh be sure to check out the uh, description of this opus uh where you can uh find resources and initiatives that you can participate in to help artists who have been um impacted by this um a lot of uh before we get into uh, uh today's conversation Scott I just wanted to say that you know many of these um initiatives that started off strong you know that money is already gone and um it's Quick. it it's it's really something and you know going beyond the arts you know uh the uh with the restaurants i've I've been trying to you know be strategic about you know when i'm gonna order takeout from this place or that place to uh, make sure i'm i'm doing my part it's it's really something else same and we've got you know we're lucky that we have a payday coming up so i'm going to be setting some of that aside for some artists and um i've got a list got a list yeah. going so yeah spread the love if you've got it yeah all right so um back in 2017 um a conductor his name is brandon keith brown he was uh, appointed music director at brown university um shortly after being hired he was fired and um he actually uh claimed racial bias i mean uh easy way to say it he was fired because he was black mm -hmm. um uh, fast forward to 2019, Brandon um, files um, a claim of racial bias, and it made international news. I mean, can can you imagine, you know, how a conversation like this would shake the, <laughs> the I classical music world? Yes, I can. But it was interesting to hear him talk about, like, conducting in South Africa and various parts of Europe where they wanted that vibe that he was laying out, you know, that they wanted him to be talking about these issues and... So that's kind of positive, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, we uh, have been uh, working on getting him on Triloquy for a while, so um, I'm really excited um, that I had to uh, got to have a conversation with him. Um, the conversation uh, was so in-depth and, 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 and so long, we decided to make this a two-parter. So um, in this opus, in part one, uh, you're going to hear a little bit about uh, Brandon's upbringing, um, his uh, time at Brown, what happened, he goes into detail, um, and um, and what immediately followed. And then on the next opus of Triloquy, um, he'll get into his travels into Europe and what he's doing now. But um, as you listen to this, I really hope uh, that you will uh, consider 
um, his uh, perspective genuinely. Uh, Scott, we talked a little bit about this before. You know, if, if someone comes up to you and says, they fired me because I was black, they fired me um, uh, because of racial bias, you know, it's easy to, to, to brush that off, or I should say it's easy for some people to brush that off, but that's some people's reality. It is, yeah. And obviously, you know, most people go, oh, man, that sucks. You know, there's sympathy. Uh, I had a friend of mine that fell victim to that. And it after he talked about it, it sounded like they were looking for an excuse. You know, there was it was petty, the reasons that they came up with. And, you know, that's probably happening quite a bit. Yeah. So uh, we definitely talked for a while. If you need to, <laughs> you know, pause and take breaks, I encourage you to uh, do what you can, because um, I, I really appreciated uh, Brandon being on. So uh, here we are with part one of my conversation with maestro Brandon Keith Brown. Brandon Keith Brown, maestro Brandon Keith Brown, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. You know, you've uh, become fairly infamous in the world of classical music. How, do, how does it feel to be one of classical music's agitators? <laughs> infamous? Well, I, I, I hope it's for good things as well as um, being pushy. <laughs> and being pushy is, is, of course, what it takes to, to make change. I wonder if you saw yourself in a sort of um, activist role like this as you were developing as a musician and as a conductor. No, never. I was just as um, a, a neoliberal brat as, as everybody else. Neoliberal. <laughs> yeah, very much thinking, oh, if I achieve a certain amount of things in the world, I will, you know, have some sort of um, success in the career and people will look at me in terms of the successes that I have. And so I was very much on the, you know, how can I gain um, cultural membership and what do I need to do? Where do I, what do I need to go to school and what competitions do I need to win and what engagements do I need to have? And so, um, no, I never, ever thought I would ever be um, an activist in classical music. Uh, I, uh, last month, I had um, a conductor on that I think you may know her. Her name is Kalina Bovell. And um, and she talked about a black tax that, you know, no matter what, but especially as a conductor in classical music, there's a tax you have to sort of culturally pay doing so much more than your white counterparts to reach the same level of success. Is that something you found in your career so far? Very much so, but let's give her a shout out as one of the very few um, professional, full-time professional black female conductors there is. She's assistant conductor at the Memphis Symphony, correct? correct? Yep. Correct. And um, and so she has to do with the stigma, of course, of being black, but also being a woman. And socioeconomically, and when you look at a lot of things sociologically, black women get the shortest end of the stick. Right. Um, and they make less money than black men do. And um, there's a lot that society puts on their shoulders that I don't have on my shoulders. So um, I think it's critical just to shout her out. Um, you know, there's a, yes, and, but you should, we're going to get into talking about Brown University right. um, later, but you must realize I wasn't so aware of this tax really before Brown. I was aware of it when the police, Chicago police pulled me over and put guns to my head, you know, at a ticketless stop, or I'm aware of it when somebody follows me in a store or, or this type of thing. And I had a lot of jealous colleagues in graduate school, you know, people that would um, hide assignments from me, tried to sabotage my um, conducting. Um, and I've had all this, you know, these things happen. I was always the only one um, in, 
any program that I was in, the only black person there. But it was something that I tried or thought I could just, you know, brush off, you know. And I was, you know, typically was doing well in these programs. And so you can look at some of those things as jealousy. But now when I look back and I look at the certain patterns of behavior that repeated over and over again among my white colleagues who always felt entitled, who always felt that they um, um, were belonged in the profession, this behavior was repeated over and over and over again. And there was a pattern there, and this was a real race-based pattern. And so, yes, there is a tax um, very much. Um, the, there is a, a large amount of implicit bias when you get in front of an orchestra, which is mostly white. They're used to seeing white people in front of them. Mm-hmm. That's all the administration puts in front of them. They have white audiences, white composers, white musicians, white administrations. And so you're inculcated with this implicit bias that white people are the um, sole arbiters of classical music. But black people are also inculcated with this because most of our training as musicians was done by white people. And so we have this expectation too that whites are a lot of times are going to be the major arbiters of classical music. And this can be very counterproductive, especially for you know, somebody like me. I didn't feel like I had a right to be a conductor hmm. um, until much later. And um, I think that that's something very important when I'm advising young, young black musicians is something really important for them to know. Um, because it's this implicit bias thing. Yeah, we, we talk about the white side of it. We need to talk about the black side of it, too, and giving ourselves and giving each other permission to be just as successful as our white colleagues. So, yes, there's a there's a real definite tax. Um, Miss Miss Bovell, she plays pays a, a higher tax than I do. Mm. Um, but yes, there there is definitely a black tax. <laughs> I think in every area of life, not just classical music. Sure, sure. And I'm sure, you know, that is multiplied in the spaces you occupy uh, in Berlin these days. And we're definitely going to get to that. But for people who um, may not have heard of you, um, who who are you? And t- tell us a little bit about your, your journey. Oh, gosh, my <laughs> journey. Um, I'm a um, conductor, an orchestral conductor of classical music. And um, just if I could go really, really fast, Please. I started as a composer at age nine. I had an amazing music teacher. Her name was Rebecca Hoyle in North Carolina. She won Teacher of the Year later on. And she'd work with me after school on how to um, write music, learn about the instruments, the ranges, the clefs, um, different clefs. And then I started playing violin. She, the string program came along in my town when I was in the fifth grade, when I was nine years old. And I started taking group lessons. And in a year, I was in the Allstate Orchestra. Oh, wow. As the youngest person, they had to lie about my age. I was one year too young. <laughs> I still wasn't taking private lessons. And then I started going to North Carolina School of the Arts in the summer sessions and in early high school and studying privately. And then eventually I went to North Carolina School of the Arts. It's now called U, um, University of North Carolina School of the Arts, but it was just UNC SA um, back then. And and um, I started going there full time my junior and senior year in, in high school for violin. And then I went to Oberlin. I went to study with Roland Amida Vemos. They invited me there. And uh, that was like an extension of my high school without a curfew. <laughs> and then the Vamoses went to Northwestern. I finished at Northwestern, but I'm still very much an OB. And I started um, doing more conducting at Northwestern. After that, I did a lot of workshop, workshops. I was teaching, performing, uh, freelance, the freelance musician throughout the Chicago area. And 
um, eventually, long story short, it wasn't really until 2009 when I met David Simon at the Aspen Music Festival where he told me afterwards, you should definitely be applying to jobs and you should do competitions. I think that you'll be great at that. And I'd gotten into a very difficult program at the Peabody Institute, um, at Johns Hopkins Peabody Institute with Gustav Meyer. And I'd gotten in that program, got a lot of great experience, worked with youth orchestras afterwards, started doing competitions and won third prize in the Schulte International Competition out of 405 and was the audience favorite. And oh. I was also the only person to get engagements from the intendants that were there. So I made my first debut with an A-level orchestra in Germany. And then I did two concerts. I was re-engaged with the Berlin Radio Orchestra, the Rundfunk Symphony Orchestra, um, and started doing you know, A and B-level orchestra work in Germany. And I did basically nothing in, in the United States. I did a Martin Luther King Day concert um, but that was it. So that's all I've worked in in America. So up until now, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm freelancing. I also, oh, also in the, the States, I worked as a professor um, at, at a school. And then I went full time to, to Germany because there were a lot more career options for me there. It seemed like the sky's the limit. I became finalist for a general music director position right away, which is a mayor appointed position and was a very good orchestra. I was number two. But I freelance basically now and working with numerous orchestras. I just got back from South Africa. I'm conducting the Concert House Orchestra um, this week. Um, next month, I'll go to um, Venezuela with the Simone Bolivar Orchestra to do Brokno 6. Then I'll come back and I'll go to uh, Slovakia. Then I'll go back to South Africa because the Johannesburg uh, Philharmonic invited me after my debut with Cape Town in January. I'll go back and then I'll come back in June and I'll cover and assist David Zinman. And then there's some things that are lining up for next year. I'm, I, I self-managed myself. After I self-managed, started self-managing myself, I got many more gigs. Mm. Which is, <laughs> you know, it just goes to show you um, you have to find somebody that's not only a good manager, but they really believe in you um, because they're selling you, you know, and you have to be able to trust them to do that. So, but And I'm sure but anyway, you trust yourself to do that. <laughs> I do. I, I definitely do. Yeah. So that's that's me in a, a quick nutshell. And, you know, as, as successful as you are right now with all of the traveling, I'm sure you have to deal with a little uh, bit of gaslighting from, from people who challenge some of the things you assert when it comes to uh, the specific barriers there are for black uh, and brown conductors. You, you know, um, yes, they, they definitely do. You know, I was in a, a really interesting position being in South Africa. Um, I, I think you're you're going to be really jealous of what I'm about to say. Okay. <laughs> um, there was a there was a little over ten black people in this orchestra. In South Africa. In Cape Town. In yeah. Cape Town. I mean, have you ever seen in a in a? I mean, maybe you have. I haven't. I have never seen. I have never been surrounded by so many black musicians in a white institution. But the sad thing is, is that, you know, it should be so much more than it that. Should, it should be so much more, but this is the first time in my, in my you know, um, career, as a freelance career, as a musician, going to a full-time, full-time professional orchestra where there's so many people of color playing so extremely well. And there was that, um, 
that was really a wonderful experience to have. And then also to go to South Africa, um, I did an interview there. It's going to be in airplanes and all sorts of things. But the, the executive director was very adamant that I talk about racism in classical music. And people came to my dressing room, musicians came to my dressing room, my second concert, and said, please don't stop talking about this. Hmm. Don't stop. No matter what people say, we need you to say these things. We need you to say these things. And, um, and so going to South Africa, I, I will say that it was a very racially destigmatizing um, event. Um, once I started to conduct, they took me for the value of, uh, that I am as a musician there. It, it didn't seem like I was starting from less than zero, mm. you know, um, whereas with all other orchestras, I definitely am. Um, and so that was a really wonderful and warm experience um, to have that. But you're right, with a lot of other um, orchestras, there can be, or managers, there can be some pushback. I've been lucky um, in Germany. I'm very, very upfront. One of the first conversations I have with new intendants, we call them here, or executive directors. Okay. One of the first conversations I have is about the fact you would not wake up you know, in the morning and hire me to do a Bruckner Six. And they usually laugh and say, of course not. And that's one of my ways to start to segue into implicit bias and to speak about it. And they're, they're fairly, mostly pretty open about it, um, especially the Germans, actually. A lot of the Germans, British people who are British, they're not. They're much more conservative about it. But the, a lot of the German intendants, they will listen. They may not hire me, mm. but, uh, but we'll have a decent a long conversation about it. And, and also I'm writing articles in the Tagesspiegel. Um, I'm writing people or people know who I am. It's not something that I hide or, 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 or something that I'm scared of letting people know. Sure, they know. Sure. They know what I'm about when they hire me, you know, like I spoke to an attendant last week, he hired me for June of next year, June, 2021. And he said, Oh, what have you been up to? I said, well, I'm writing an article against tolerance to put in the Tagesspiegel because the word tolerance is racist. Mm. And he's, oh, really? And, and this is the first time we ever spoke. But he still hired me. Sure. You know? so, so, yes, there, there is um, blowback, and I know that I'm missing opportunities. And there are people that were interested that stopped being interested once I started talking about this. But the thing is, if you can't talk about race, then you're going to be uncomfortable with me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm black. Yeah. Yeah. All, all day, every day. I'm, all, I'm back all day, every day. And, and, and this, if something goes wrong on the engagement, there's a, already a lack of empathy that you're going to have for me. And, and it, of course, you're gonna be, it's going to be much more difficult um, experience for me if you don't understand, hey, the fact that I'm, I'm black and the problems and the, and the issues that this entails um, when you stand in front of an orchestra. It seems like one of the issues is that, um, and I actually heard this from um, a colleague of mine a few years ago, is that we racialize people of color, but we don't racialize white people. So when the conversation of, oh, why are you always talking about race? You know, that uh, it, it, it seems like, you know, race is a part of our everyday conversation more than it is for white people, despite the fact that they are equally race as as we are. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to. I love this lady, Robin D'Angelo. Have you read her book? Um, 
White Fragility. It's, yes, it's a very, yes. It's a very thin yes. book, yeah. and I encourage everybody to read it. But um, So I could quote her all day long, but I'll try not to bore your listeners with this. But, but <laughs> one thing she points out, the fact that white people aren't racialized from a young age. Right. And you could ask a room of white people, when did you realize you were white? And they'll just look around and s- puzzled with each other. You know, it's not something, it's not a condition that they have to go throughout their day thinking about and how this whiteness affects the, the people around them. You know, when they walk down the street late at night, they're not thinking, oh my gosh, I better keep my distance from this, this, um, this black person because they're going to fear that I'm going to mug them or that I'm going to rape them. Or, oh my goodness, keep my hands out of my pocket when I go in the store. They think I'm going to be a thief, mm-hmm. you know, or I have to smile all the time because people think I'm angry and I'm going to be violent and I'm going to be, I mean, they don't think about all of these types of um, um, code switching that black people have to do because they never had to think of it. You know, it's it's a wonderful. I guess it's a wonderful feeling to have. You know, <laughs> it, it must be. I wouldn't know, but <laughs> I wouldn't either. Um, so uh, a, a few minutes ago, we we kind of mentioned uh, Brown University, and actually, your um, drama there, if I may use that word, is is what made me aware of you um, and your work. And I'm sure that's the case for many people. Uh, for folks who don't know, how about you? You tell us the story of your, uh, you know, your situation at Brown University. Well, Brown, now that I reflect on it, um, it was a racial trauma. It was a racist trauma. It wasn't just a, you know, a, a dramatic um, event. It was a very traumatic thing that happened to me. Um, I was hired, I was asked um, if I was interested to take a one-year position as a visiting professor by a composer named Eric Nathan. Mm. And he asked me on May 7th of 2017, and that was on a Wednesday night. And then I interviewed on a Saturday and I was offered the job the following Tuesday. And I had given them all my materials. Uh, they hadn't checked any references, they didn't care. But I wasn't thinking about the fact if I was the only black faculty member, what the student demographics were, and if I was the first black faculty member. Mm. Um, so anyway, through a series of negotiations, I was hired later um, in the month. I arrived um, on, I arrived in with, uh, with, uh, Providence at the end of August, and my first day on campus on September 5th, um, uh, Joseph Meisel, who's the uh, deputy provost and was the um, department chair at the time, he tells me we were looking to diversify the department, and you're a part of it. And from that moment, I'm sure you felt, well, what, what did you feel at that moment? Oh, well, did... I, felt, I felt cold, huh. uh, like a token. You know that feeling when you get afraid and your, your, your f- tip of your fingers go cold right. and, your finger, and your toes go cold? That's what I felt. And this was after a meeting that we just had about ideas and, and thoughts that I had to make the program better. I inherited a program that was complete chaos from Paul Phillips. Um, and... He, he actually acknowledged the fact that I was trying to make the program better. He wrote in a group email to a lot of executives in the university. Um, his exact words were, Brandon is rightly, in my view, looking to put a little more organization and systemization into things. The department hasn't been strong on organizational practices overall, as I'm experiencing. And Brandon would put, li- like to put more rigor and responsibility into the situation. At the same time, um, uh, Todd Winkler, who's a, the only full professor there, started bullying me. 
you know, telling me I'm the only full professor, you know, he wanted me to go out to dinner with him and coffee. A lot of times when you're an orchestra director, you come into a new place, everybody wants to have a hand in the pot and of what you're doing to try to, and he's a composer. So of course he wants to try to manipulate the situation, manipulate me to get him on his, his side. And in my contract, it specifically said no meetings. And hmm. he didn't want to honor that. And my soul pushed to have a meeting anyway. So then the second day, this is all on the first day, the, the first day I stepped foot on campus. The second day on the 6th of September, I get an email from students who never met me saying that students were nervous and anxious to audition for orchestra this year. Had you even stood on the podium yet? No, 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 no. That came the second week, not the first. No, I never stood on the so, podium. So the all, students never met me. All, all of this simply in response to your being hired? Yes. Wow. And, and so the students had had never met me yet or, or anything um, uh, like this. So, so yes. So, so yes. So I got this email. And so of course this was very upsetting, but there was also some personal thing going on at the time. DHL had lost um, two, um, two packages of, of my belongings, my clothes and orchestral scores. Also the apartment that I had found on the internet um, I put a $1,500 deposit on this department. I got to the apartment. It was filthy. It was disgusting. I had them clean up the apartment. I paid another month of rent. And then I got a notice saying that the, depart- uh, the apartment was actually owned by somebody else. It had been sold because there was oh, a tax no. lien. Oh, and no. I lost, I lost $3,000. Oh, my God. So, uh, yes. And so this was week one. I lost $3,000. My, my chair had told me I'm a token. The students were nervous and anxious to audition for orchestra, and I'm being bullied by a senior faculty member. So, um, so things weren't going so well uh, yet. So you had a racially animous um, student, student body. Um, it became more racially animous. Students were taunting me. There was a bass player named Max, uh, Max Naftal on the 14th, he's saying, oh, you're really different than the last conductor. I'm scared of you. I'm afraid to talk to you. He says these things while smiling. This is the type of behavior, daily behavior that the students are, are having. Then on the, um, on the 16th, round about the 16th of September, um, I was taken out to dinner by um, David Josephson, who was a previous department chair for many years and he'd been in the department for over 45 years Mm. and he gave me a complete reading on the department and I have no why I have no idea why to this day why he told me all of these horrible things about the department so soon in my tenure and especially since they were considering me for they wanted me to consider a long-term position and I told them no I'm doing this only for a year and he tells me that a previous conductor was allowed to have sex with his male students and keep teaching. He said that, you know, he told this conductor, you can't come to school anymore in a limo, in a cape. And once the word got around that he was having sex with his students and, and everybody knew about it, they let him teach for one more year. And then, you know, he was fired. And I checked this uh, with people that were in this orchestra at that time. And this all checks out the inappropriate relationships with with students, dinners, gifts, touching, and all sorts of behavior. And I have messages messages that people have sent me um, confirming this behavior. Um, they fired two conductors that had known disabilities. There was nepotism on the tenure process where 
one faculty member, where faculty members wouldn't disclose their marital status until they could vote the other one up into the tenure process. Hmm. Um, there were racial double standards in terms of um, uh, uh, evaluation. It was a highly dysfunctional faculty. The, the, the band director told me he was really happy to speak with the orchestra director because he hadn't spoken with Paul Phillips for the past 19 years. The ethnomusicology faculty, um, there was a stay on admissions because they didn't speak to each other. So the provost said, you can't accept any more students. Uh, the previous director was tardy, um, completely disorganized. Instruments were lost and stolen regularly, including a $12,000 English horn the previous year. Somebody just walked away with it, and nobody was reprimanded. Nobody was asked any questions about it. Um, he also, David Josephson also told me that he thinks this whole thing about DAP, which is Diversity Inclusion Action Plan, which is the reason why they hired me. Um, he thinks this, he didn't like it at all. He believed that there were enough black students in the department already, and the, really, I didn't see any. Um, in the I music department. Well, there might have been. There might have been, but they weren't black presenting. Hmm. And so that's to be politically correct. I mean, sure. Just, you don't always, you know, even though we're black, you can't always, <laughs> if you look out, you know, if they're not in your class, how do you know, you know? So all of this behavior was tolerated. He tolerated under his tenure there. Um, this type of behavior, you know, inappropriate relationships with students, nepotism, dysfunctional, unprofessional um, behavior between faculty members which compromised uh, student learning. All of this stuff was known and this was the reason why the provost had the deputy uh, provost come into the department because it was a complete, complete mess. Um, and I had no idea about these things. I should have try to to ascertain this but I had no idea so I I get into uh, the position we're rehearsing now I I, I get called in to um, the office of, of my soul and he he dresses me down he basically says that um, he says that my emails are too short that my tone was bad and that I needed to smile more and the students feel like, you know, I'm not creating a, a great environment in the rehearsal, um, in the rehearsal time. And I told him, would you please come to my rehearsals? And you must understand that Brown never observed any of my classes, ever. And I videotaped most of my, most of my rehearsals. Mm -hmm. and, I offer, and I offered it to him and the senior dean uh, to, to review, Janet Bloom. I offered it to them. And I sent them a link, even, to my rehearsals. They refused to view anything. They only relied on the word of their white students. And so all of these, all of these decisions that were made, including my termination, were made only on the word of their white students. And so there was never any um, real substantial evidence that they had. Um, the rehearsal hall, the, like I told you, the conditions, my office was a mess. The whole program was a mess. I didn't know where anything was. But the rehearsal hall also was um, was damaging um, to very damaging to my my hearing. There were curtains in the hall before I arrived, but they took them down. And so this is a dance hall. It's not a concert hall. A alumni hall is mm. is this just wooden dance hall. So the sure. sound bounces off everything, and I would have pain down the sides of my my neck when I finished finished rehearsal, and would have sometimes static 
And I still, to this day, sometimes have static in my, my right ear. And this is a problem that conductors have, but not at my age, um, normally. And I complained about this, but they refused to put the curtains um, back up. Um, and so you had these occupational health and safety issues that completely went ignored. But with the previous director, of course, they protected, um, protected his hearing. I had a, this, this type of over-attention and over-evaluation for no reason continued throughout my brief tenure there. Um, there was a student, his name was Typher Young. He was a, a violinist and he was given concert master at the beginning. He assaulted, verbally assaulted his students, turned around and his fellow classmates and turned around and flicked them off and cursed at them. And I moved his chair back because that's just not a good example for a concert master. I would agree, setting. yeah. And, and he felt entitled to sit there. He's a wonderful, he was a very good violinist, but he felt entitled to sit there and that he could kind of treat everybody any way he wanted. So I moved him back and I gave it to a, a girl um, and who could control herself to a certain extent. But later on in the semester, there was the concerto competition and he didn't advance to the final round. I was not the sole judge. And he was very upset about this. And hmm. so the next, the next day in the rehearsal, he sat on the first desk where he's not supposed to. I asked him to sit back. He refused. And eventually he quit. But then the next rehearsal, he came to stalk me in my classroom. And he refused to leave. And so I, I asked him to leave. I said, I'll have to call the police if you don't leave. Um, eventually he chose to leave, but he came up to the podium and, you know, said something to the effect, you know, you failed me and you failed all of us. And then he starts patting me on the back and says, now I will go. And, um, and this is very threatening behavior coming from somebody that can't control his temper in the first place. And, and I reported this to the university and they fired me three days after this. And they replaced me with a, a middle-aged the middle-aged white part-time cello teacher who has negligible conducting experience. They weren't interested in having, they weren't interested in having a real conductor. This, I mean, I should have been able to see this before coming to the, to the position. They were interested in having somebody black. They were interested in having somebody there to finally um, move past their, their school and especially the department being institutionally racist and, and excluding um, black people. I wonder, you know, this this is a lot, and and it all sounds very messy to me. You know, from from an outside perspective, I can't help but to think that um, money was somehow uh, involved in these conversations. Maybe one of the students had a parent or a grandparent that was a benefactor to 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 some degree, and that ended up impacting the department's decision to let you go. Yes, well, I I it could be that Typher Yom is very wealthy, and I do know from the responses because I submitted a, a complaint to the Rhode Island Human Rights Commission. The responses from the university were very much sympathetic for the students. Meisel said, I've known this, this, this uh, kid, I've known Typher for quite a, a while and he's a good kid. And it was, it was very much so that he um, was going to play favorites, of course, for the students on their behalf. And I mean, this, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, we did have, I think there was a, a child who was a vice president of somebody from Microsoft in the orchestra. Hmm. Um, and uh, yes, I, I, he, he, he is. And the previous director told me 
he has to be in the orchestra because he donates to the music school. So, so there, there are these types of um, pol political dynamics, things that I did not want to be a part of at all. And that's one of the reasons why I was excused from meetings in my contract, because this was a one-year job. I know what academia is. I know what the tenure, this tenure process and meetings, endless meetings about nothing can be. And that wasn't my role for one year to be involved in these types of things. So I, I know that for, for better or for worse, you know, you learned a lot uh, from this situation. Um, I wonder if you apply any of that um, or if you applied any of that moving forward. Is there any part of this experience that um, uh, inspired you to change the way you move in, in any way for, for better or for worse? Well, one thing I just wanted to say oh, please. is that, um, you know, the, after this event, there was a there was international media coverage of mm -hmm. this. And it was it was in the wake of the Me Too movement. And a, a lot of people, I think, were waiting for the other shoe to fall for something dramatic to happen. But nothing dramatic happened because nothing happened. Um, the university made a lot of disparaging remarks, including Kevin McLaughlin, the dean came out and said, you know, it's very rare that we let somebody go in the middle of the year. It must have been a clear indication that they weren't doing their job. He never met me. He's not a musician. He didn't hire me. He never observed my classes. And he's just able to say these things because he's a white dean at Brown and I was disposable. Um, but in my, in my dismissal letter, when I let lawyers read this, um, two lawyers, different lawyers, they don't know each other, said that I was the house inward. Mm. And and were these the, black lawyers? You were no, they okay. were white. Huh? They were white, and they said they said, "I'm sorry to tell you, Mr. Brown, but you're basically the house inward. There was nothing substantial in this letter to to fire somebody legally, but it, my soul, his reason on the last page of this this four page letter, he says that I was inconsistent with our educational and community values. And what is so, I wonder what that means? Well. You can read into that what you want, but there's no there's no seminal thing or group of things that I did in this job. It was basically like, you're you're black. We don't accept your culture repertoire. We are not looking for somebody who is really competent. We just wanted somebody to come in and play nice with the kids. This is not a very serious endeavor, which they which they you know made very clear in their response uh, to the commission. This is just. Even though kids are awarded credit and, and everything for this, they made it seem like it was just a, a club. And I systematized things very much mm -hmm. and made people arrive early and made sure people set up. And, and To take it seriously. Well, I can't, I don't function out of non-serious musical environments. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is the reason why music, classical music, is in the shape that it is in the United States. It's because... People learn that it's a free-for-all. You don't have to play really well. There's no sort of standards. It's just for fun. You can do it the way that you want. And so when it comes time to buy that $35, $75 ticket, they're like, well, I don't take you guys seriously. You're just doing something for fun. You, I, I mean, anybody can get up there. It says, you know, why can I do that? I should do that too. And then you get boards of, boards of directors who don't have that type of, you know, it's just, it's not like that in Germany. It's the culture of music. People take it very, when you say you're a musician, it's a very, very, very serious, serious thing. They even have a different word for conductor. It's dirigent. It's not conductor. We have a separate word for, for, for musical, musical terminology because it's, it's this whole higher level. 
and that doesn't exist in America. And and if you don't give kids in a youth orchestra or whatever level, if you don't give them a sense of discipline and a, and a sense of how serious, you can have fun. You can do all sorts of fun things and parties and stuff. But if you don't give them the fact that this is a science, that there's rigor to this, where are they going to learn that? Where are they going to learn to have respect for musicians? Where are they going to learn to have respect for music? You know, I think my role as a musician is to be a shepherd for this very short period of time that I'm on earth. We've got to take this, you know, this Mona Lisa, if we're doing a Beethoven symphony, and put it carefully into the future. We're responsible for it now, you know, taking care of it and putting it into the future. And if we don't give kids this sense of uh, integrity and responsibility about music making, Who's going to give it to them? And so that's the level that I operate on. That was not the level that Brown um, need, wants or desires or will ever need. And quite frankly, if I'm being very honest, it's not the level most schools in America want. They don't want that. They want somebody that the faculty will like, that they'll get along with the faculty, that will make the customers and the students very happy and give the students a prize for, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth place to make sure that they're, they feel that their neoliberal egos are served. But none of this has anything to do with the music itself. And so you asked me what I learned from this experience. Well, you know, I learned an immense amount. I learned that first, I, it's, it's a shame that I didn't know this at age 37. First and foremost, my blackness comes. Before your skills, before your experiences. Before everything else. And, and please don't think I didn't have the black grandma or the black mother who told me these things mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. I, had, I, had, I was hard-headed. I mean, I, and all of the racial things that I've had happen to me in my life. I mean, just, you know, just common stuff that you've had, you know, all sorts of things. Um, for the most part, my schooling was, was okay, especially at Oberlin, especially North Carolina School of Arts, I had no racism at all. It wasn't until I got to Northwestern where I had a pretty extreme um, racism. Um, but, but I didn't experience that in my early schooling, so much racism. And, but after all the things that have happened, you would think I would know. But I had to be reminded that that's the perception of me being this angry, threatening, anxiety-inducing black person comes first. And also that the word of white students will be taken over mine in a classroom every day. Wow, wow. And, and when I spoke, when I started speaking, Garrett, with other colleagues, um, I didn't normally get to tell my whole story because they interrupted and started telling me their own, which matched mine, other black, you know, colleagues. Um, it's, it's worse um, a lot of times for female black professors um, because there's also um, issues of um, sometimes sexual harassment, um, honestly, um, that's involved in addition to um, feeling people making you feel that you're not qualified to be there, there and having to justify you being there every single time you step in front of a white classroom. Um, and so that would be probably the biggest thing that I took from this. 
Uh, so I don't know if you know um, the bassoonist and community activist Lacoli in Washington, um, but I actually had the pleasure of uh, being his student. That was my entry into college, into playing the bassoon and orchestral music. And uh, one of the first things he told me was that I'm going to, you know, deal with a lot of racism in the field, but I'm going to be gaslit along the way. People will always try to find another reason why you're let go or why you don't get this opportunity other than the fact that race plays a part of it. What do you say to the critics who say that um, these students at Brown weren't looking for an actual orchestral experience, but more of that fun time, club time that that you were um, acting inappropriately in? What, what do you say to those critics? Well, first of all, just to go a lot deeper, sure. Um, white people control. White people have all the social, political, and institutional power. So they control what's important in society. They occupy all the political structures within our within our uh, society, and they control the top institutions. And this is a racially inequitable power imbalance. It's based on race. And because white people control all these things, this means white people are inherently racist. It's not a decision that they get to make. Being white means you're racist because you have the advantage of having all social, political, and institutional power um, over me. So when you, when you put um, this type of definition of racism on top of the Brown situation, everything gets crystal clear suddenly. So you have all of the people and all of the people in the power positions, of course, who are white. And they've never dealt with somebody with a different, different cultural repertoire. Mm. They've never had to deal with somebody who is black, a black conductor who was living in Germany for the past uh, almost three years. This is a culture here where you don't smile in public too much because you'd be considered crazy. I mean, there's articles written on this. I'm not making this up. Mm-hmm. If you don't know about Germans, they don't smile. It's, it's, it's just kind of weird. It's very strange. And they think that Americans are weird to smile all the time. So I had, a, I had been living in Germany. I had a, had a different cultural environment there. Yes, I'm American, but I had adapted. And then I come back. I was given no time before I was told that I was a token, that I wasn't valuable to the uni- to the university. I was just there for window dressing. Right, from day one, yeah. Day two, students before they meet me say they're nervous and, and have anxiety. Of course, as a black person, we don't want to be told that we have nervous and threatening and have anxiety and all of these things. And then I come in. You have to understand the very first rehearsal uh, I have this video, and you're more than I'm more than happy to send it to you. We did Brahms one, and the kids played the exposition of the first movement by themselves. Mm. Without a so, conductor, you mean? Without me. Yeah. So that was the level of teaching. So that was what I brought to the table. That was what they weren't interested um, interested in in having. So I mean, I think. I think it's important for people to know that if you're going to hire Brendan Brown, that you're going to get a, a very high level of music making. I require a very high level of music making. I require a, a, um, a large amount of discipline. And I also demand a certain amount of respect. 
um, within the classroom setting. If you're looking for a black conductor who's just really nice and friendly and, uh, you know, I'm friendly, I'm nice, but that's not the that's not the reason why I'm stepping on the podium. I'm there for Beethoven at that time. I'm there for Brahms. I'm there for Mozart. I'm giving everything I can up unselfishly up to the the task at hand that we have to do, and that that's just a really big problem stemming from America. This this neoliberal attitude that I'm responsible for myself. I'm not going to give anything up from myself to a larger group. And this is this destroys orchestras. This makes the sound of orchestras starting to sound all the same. And it's a it's a big problem that is spreading from the United States and it's coming into Europe as well. And the Germans really we talk about it very a lot, very, very often, because even the smallest little provincial orchestras in Germany, they have very unique sounds. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. There's a hundred and 136 full-time orchestras in Germany. And um, a lot of them in their different regions have their own specific sounds. It's because they were taught to give themselves over to something that's bigger than themselves. And this is something that's very much missing. So these are some of the things that I learned from this experience. So, you know, while, while you lay out the fact that, you know, your experience in Germany musically is that, you know, as, you, as you've just said, if there's more appreciation of that unique sound and giving up oneself for the whole. But based on um, the articles that you've written, at least the ones I've read, the racism seems as violent there, if, if not more in some cases. It's, it's much more insidious because people are so ignorant and also because we there is no there's free speech there's a lot of things that are in the constitution in, in germany but nobody uh, addresses them the un in 2006 the un commission came in 2006 and said that germany has some some of the most uh, racially progressive laws out of any um european uh country but they ignore them and um so so it's, it's a very hypocritical place. Hmm. Um, it, one of the most recent things that happened is in December, uh, a judge in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, which is north of or outside of Berlin, ruled that the N-word is legal to say. And, wow. And, and, and in Germany, hate speech is against the law. So in the United States, you can say a lot of racist things, and, and it's not against the law. The police won't take you away. I just want to make it clear for people to understand, like the police aren't going to take you away if you say the N word, I think, in America. They're not going to. In Germany, they're supposed to. You go to you go to jail and you have a minimum fine. I think it's two thousand euros. It's a crime. And so is doing the Hall Hitler sign. And we all know we all know why these things. Right. History. Yeah. People couldn't control themselves. And so all of these things are are crimes. But these things are slowly bit by bit being allowed to to happen more and more to black populations and and so now of course we have hanau that um that just happened um and and i've written an article that's going to be coming out on the word uh tolerance because everybody wants to use this this word tolerance as a way of deciding who you accept and who you don't accept there's always this intellectual doublespeak in German. Germans are very, Germans are, no matter what negative things you say about Germans, they're really smart. And so they find ways of saying, not always 
saying completely yes, but going in the middle. And tolerance allows for an exception to acceptance. So it allows you to make a decision. Yes, I, I accept the black per I, I, I tolerate the black person, but I don't accept them. I tolerate women in the workplace, but I really don't think they should be there. I tolerate gay people, but I think it's against, you know, it's against my religion. It, and so there's, there's all of this nomenclature that is poisonous and extremely problematic. And this is causing a lot of, of um, rife racism and problems in, in, within German society here. And so I'm trying to, some of the things I'm trying to do is to try to iron this out. Um, I, I think this is a great place for me to try to make some social, um, social change. It's because people are, uh, by and large, they're educated, they read, and um, and they think, and I, I don't I, I don't have that same confidence all over America. I'm sorry, I don't. I'm American. I live there. This just doesn't happen. You know, some of the articles that I think I've written in Germany, they wouldn't even print them in the papers here. But the responses that I've gotten is six or seven page German letters, philosophically um, discussing every point within my article. It's it's a bit it's a bit much, but it's very hopeful. Um, I, I think if Germany would use its greatest superpower, which is music, um, because there's always been these really crazy exceptions throughout history for, um, for, for black talent in music, for example. There, mm -hmm. were, there were black singers that sung at Bayreuth in the 1930s. The, the first all-American trained instrumentalist to play with a European orchestra was Hazel Harrison. She was a pianist, a black pianist, African-American. She played um, three times with the Berlin Philharmonic, and I believe it was 1903, three times. And she, she became um, head chair of the um, Howard Piano Department, and she died in that position. She had no career, and in the United States, they said, she's a wonderful pianist. It's a shame she's a Negro. Oh, my goodness. Um, and then you have all of the exceptions. Of course, there was Dean Dixon, who became chief um, of the Frankfurt Radio. He also conducted at the Wiener Staatsoper, which is Vienna, everybody knows, is abhorrently racist. You know, um, and sexist in many ways, I also understand. Oh, it's ex oh, ex extraordinary. I mean, that's a whole other issue. But but the racism thing, you know, they came out about that in mean, the 20, in 2012 about their role in actually making sure the Jewish musicians got on the train. I mean, people like took them to the train. Oh my goodness. And so, Yikes. <laughs> so Yikes. That, was the, that was the Vienna Philharmonic. Um, so, so, but there, there was also George Bird from my home state of North Carolina who went to Juilliard, had a lot of racism, went to Paris, Carry On discovered him. He started to guest conduct Bayerische Rundfunk, Berlin Philharmonic, first black to conduct a Von House Orchestra. Um, there were always these little ex exceptions for sometimes even for Jewish musicians um, that they, they made exceptions. The, the works of Mendelssohn, the librarians in the Berlin Library sent, sent them as far as a lot of the works as far away as is possible to prevent them from being um, destroyed. There's all of these crazy uh, caveats for music. And if they would just use their greatest superpower to bring people together, to get people to realize that we all have the same feelings. And if we could sit in a hall together and feel the same way, I don't care if it's five minutes or 30 minutes, 
we would understand that we have the same emotion and this shared experience of sharing each other's emotion, this is something that goes into the intermission. This is something that goes into the street. Mm -hmm. And, and, And I know it's really strange for... It's still classical music. Yes, it's still kind of for the upper middle class, but the ticket prices are lower here. And in Berlin, especially, there's so many concerts and there's lots of different types of people that this this stigma of having to dress up to the concert and be very, you know, to be rich or a certain type of class. It's it's less here. And so you have, you know, I had my first concert that I did in, in Germany. There were farmers there. There are lots of farmers in overalls and, and straw hats in the um, upper balcony. Um, there's lots of different classes of people. I think, I think much more so than in America. And, but if you can get all of these people together with the Turkish people, with refugees, with black people like me, people who don't normally feel comfortable going into these white spaces and get them to feel the same way through sound, It's only through sound, it's only through this greatest form of communication that we can actually bring people together and get them to empathize with each other. Everything we talk about, we talk about racism. That's like this very, you know, hot button, sexy, you know, sexy word. Racism, all it boils down to is lack of empathy. Having less empathy for people that aren't like ourselves. And that's how these structures of institutionalized racism at Brown were created. They hired people that they knew. They hire people within their circles, you know, um, the, that's how these universities, that's how these, these orchestra boards, that's how these orchestras are, are um, remaining white. Well, you know, Brandon, I, I have several, several, several um, more questions for you and things I would like for us to explore, but our time is up for today. You know, I think I'm going to do a first, something I've never done. I would love to have you um, for part two. Maybe maybe we can do uh, week one and week two uh, with, Brand- with Brandon just to make sure that we really get the full picture of uh, your work and your experiences. Th- does that sound like something that, that's okay with you? Oh, I'd absolutely love that. As long as it's after these next two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're taping this right now um, ahead of uh, you know ahead of time so that we can we can make that happen. So um, okay. so 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 thank you so much uh, for being on this opus. Uh, if uh, those of you listening, uh, look forward to uh, catching more um, from Maestro Brown uh, next week right here on Triloquy. You know, Garrett, I can see Brandon's point. He said that he was hard-headed, you know, and he grew up not really experiencing racism directly. And it wasn't until he got older and then to Brown where it was just so prevalent. Um, that That's kind of what happened to me, too. I didn't see it. I didn't have to deal with it very much. And I'm wondering what your experience is. Uh, you know, he was talking about trying to tell his experience to other black musicians, and they, instead of listening, would interrupt his story with their own story that was similar. Is that happening for you on the regular? You know, it's uh, it, it's a reality that um, that I haven't had to face in a in a negative way uh, for for a while now. You know, uh, as a kid. Um, I remember, you know, in the in the Boy Scouts or whatever, there were certain, 
you know, dad's houses where, you know, I just didn't go that week. And, mm. and my parents, my parents were, you know, definitely, you know, out front uh, with me about what that was and, and what that meant. Um, as far as, you know, college and, and my career, you know, I can't say that um, I, I faced it in the way Brandon did, but, you know, there's always the, you know, um, touching my hair and, and, and that sort of thing that, that, that pops in and out. But um, I, I appreciate Brandon putting himself out there and, and having the conversation because, you know, again, it's, as I think I said, when I was talking to him, it's so easy for people to just brush it aside and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and say, oh, well, it's actually because X, Y, and Z, you know? Sure. When, when we talked to it early on, when you were talking about the black tax that Kalena brought up and then Mm -hmm. cultural membership is, are those two terms different or are they just a different way of explaining the same sort of uh no no, absolutely yeah that's why i brought her up in the conversation because yeah it's it's definitely a a way of saying the you know two different ways of 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 saying the same thing okay i just wanted to make sure that you know because some of these some of these terms they can get really specific and i just want to make sure that i'm always you know using the right terminology so um so uh if you're uh listening uh, appreciate your uh spending the time taking the time to hear the perspective of uh brandon keith brown uh, on the next opus of triloquy um i'm actually gonna uh, have a conversation with him about what came next so uh these days he's living over in berlin um he's uh you know traveled um locally and internationally to conduct a number of orchestras and um, I think it's really interesting to hear how the issues he spoke to here in the United States translate over uh, into Europe how mm-hmm. they're similar how uh, they're they're very different um, so I hope you'll uh, stay tuned and uh, join us for the next opus of Triloquy um, hope you uh, stay safe uh, stay well and uh, as of today stay socially isolated stay home be well